This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to say that I'm joined on Football CFB today by a man who has invested in football. Uh, many of us love the idea of buying a football club and being involved in the game, but but this man has, has done just that. Jordan Gardner, uh, he's made investments in Swansea City and Dundalk football clubs, but crucially, he's also the majority shareholder at Helsingor in Denmark. Jordan, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. The, the very simple uh, question I've got to start with, why did you, do you want to get involved in investing in football? Yeah, I mean, um, I had a passion for the sport. It's something that's really exciting. And, you know, I, I played the sport growing up in the States, up pretty close to a professional level. I'm really interested in both the business side and the ownership side and the football side and the on the pitch side. So you know, for me, um, you know, getting into the sport was just something that was really interesting and opportunities presented themselves through uh, different connections that I had. And, you know, as you mentioned, I have different stakes and clubs for different reasons. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, being able to be in the owner's box when Swansea City was in the Premier League playing Manchester United or Chelsea was an amazing experience or being a part of a promotion push that we had and a successful promotion that we had at FC Helsinger last season in Denmark was super exciting. So, you know, as we talked about before the call, it's, it's really fun and interesting. It's also a lot of hard work and a lot of things that go on uh, behind the scenes that a lot of people don't realize. So um, yeah, it's, you know, I have an entrepreneurial background, so it's something that kind of suits my skill set really well. And in terms of those investments, what was the first investment into football that you made? Uh, the first investment was uh, Swansea City. I have a very, very small stake, uh, part of the American ownership group that bought into Swansea City in 2017, I believe, 2018. Um, so that was, you know, I, I was able to get connected to the ownership group and uh, they were looking to raise a little bit more money. The club was in the Premier League. You know, for me, wanting to do th bigger things in football down the road, you know, majority, you know, controlling interests of clubs, I felt it was a really good opportunity to be involved in a club in a really small way. I went out to about seven or eight games that season. I was able to sit and speak with the, the CEO, speak with the sporting people, understand the philosophy of the club. Unfortunately, the club went through a relegation, which, you know, is not a fun experience, but that was something I was able to learn a lot about how the club reacted to that. Um, so yeah, Swansea was the, was the first investment in European football, I, was, I mean. The first investment is a minority investment, as you've mentioned. Was mm -hmm. that really what sparked your interest in becoming the majority shareholder and the owner of a football club in your own right? Yeah, I mean, I think the thought process for me was, you know, a lot of American groups go into European football and they buy big clubs. Um, you know, you see those stories with Sunderland and Aston Villa and other clubs. And I don't, I felt for me, it was important to actually have a really good understanding of what it took to be successful in European football. Um, and so for me, that meant, you know, spending a lot of time on the ground, learning, soaking up a lot of the environment. And I felt like that was really important to do that through a minority stake. And once 
I felt that I had the proper tools, then it was the time that we could go ahead and put a group together and buy a bigger, you know, majority stake in a club. And that didn't mean going to buy a primary league club that meant let's go into a little bit of a smaller country and um, prove ourselves at a smaller club, which is what we've done in Denmark. And then eventually we can scale over a period of time to buying a bigger club in Europe and put ourselves in a position to be successful. That's what, what, what the thought process was. Why Denmark is the obvious question. You mentioned you wanted a, a smaller a smaller league. Were you inspired at all by Matthew Benham and what he's achieved at Mitchelland? Yeah, you know, I have a lot of success for what he's done. I sat with him maybe about two years ago um, and met him in person, was able to kind of pick his brain about the success that he said at Brentford, obviously, and then Michelin in Denmark. Um, you know, we're not necessarily trying to replicate, of course, what they're doing, because it's taken a lot of time and energy to, to get to where they're going. You know, Michelin's in the Champions League this year. Um, you know, Denmark was interesting for a lot of different reasons. You know, first off, it was a country where most people spoke English, and that was kind of important for our first jump into European football in terms of the cultural barriers, both bringing in foreign players and from an ownership perspective. Um, what I really liked is also there's, there's really a culture of playing young players, developing them and selling them in Denmark. Some of the other leagues, that's not necessarily the case, but you have a lot of players from Denmark that move on to Germany, Holland, Belgium, the UK. So there's, there's a pretty good track record there. And then, you know, you have a league that is the top league in Scandinavia, has a really good track record. And it felt a little bit kind of under the radar, you know, we could have gone in and looked at, you know, the championship league one, league two in the UK, but it feels like those leagues are, are definitely very, very competitive. And there's people spending crazy amounts of money as we've seen. And it felt like we can go into the, in Denmark and buy a little bit of a smaller club and, and really have a lot of interesting ways and, and have a pathway to success that maybe is just too difficult in a bigger country like the UK. And in terms of the club, I mean, it's got a relatively new stadium. It's been in the, the top flight in, in Danish football in, in, in recent years. Also as well, it's a club that, although some people call it a, a young club, it's got a lot of history and guys that have went on to play for the senior national team, if you look through the history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the club was very attractive for a variety of reasons, you know, most of the bigger clubs in Denmark are in and around Copenhagen. And the thing we liked about FC Helsinger was it's, it has its own, you know, cashman area, geographic area. It's, it's in the Northern tip of Denmark and it's kind of a hotbed of talent development. Obviously over the years, a lot of top players have gone on to play bigger clubs. Um, so we felt that was a really interesting place to be at, had a new stadium coming. The club had been in the Danish Superliga two seasons ago. So there was a lot of really interesting pieces to the puzzle. Obviously the club had struggled a bit once we bought it, um, you know, previous season or two had been relegated, had not been managed particularly well. So we felt it was, it was kind of had the right recipe for a club that, you know, you know, it's not a club that's going to be in the champions league. Right. But a club that could have a lot of success in Danish football. And in terms of analytics, how important is the use of data analytics with a club like Helsinger when you're trying to compete with the teams in your division and ultimately strive for promotion? Yeah, I mean, look, we're one of the, lo the lowest spending teams in our division. We're playing teams that have come down from the Superliga, teams with a lot of infrastructure and financial backing. You know, right now we are sixth in the table out of 12 teams and we're ahead of three or four teams that are spending three to four times more on player wages than we are. So we have to be innovative. We have to use things like data analytics and be more savvy in recruitment. So. You know, I look at it as kind of a, a, a balance between one side of our organization where we, we, we absolutely have to rely on data and be smart about how we use data 
when it comes to recruitment, when it comes to analyzing our game day performance and player performance and injury prevention. But I'm also a firm believer that, you know, you have people that really understand the landscape in that domestic market. In this case, that's Danish football. So whether that's identifying players in the lower divisions that can come up and translate or identifying players that have come through big clubs that we can scoop up and bring into our environment. So, you know, for me, it's kind of a 50-50 between focusing on data and also the actual knowledge of the domestic environment. And then beyond that, to me, the most important piece, even beyond that, as important as things like data are, is just building the right culture. And I think you could see that in certain clubs, whether it's Bielsa, Leeds, or, you know, there's a lot of examples of clubs across Europe where the environment from the ownership down to the sporting director, down to the coach, creates a place where players want to play the 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 sum of the parts of the team outperforms just spending money on individual players. And I think that's one thing I've been really pleased with as we brought in a coach and a manager and created a culture at our club over the last two seasons, that's um, been incredibly positive, a place where players could have gone to bigger clubs and got more money and decided to come and play for us because they believed in the culture and, and the vision that we've had for the club. So that's something, you know, I'm a really firm believer in is, is building a culture. And I think we've done that in Denmark. As part of that culture, how important will young players coming through the system or young players that you buy in be? Because a really positive culture in football, you see it across Scandinavia, is clubs developing their own players or developing young players they've brought in and then selling them on for profits years down the line? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a big piece of who we are and what we are as an organization. You know, we've, we have a, a good mix of good young talent domestically from Denmark and in other places in Scandinavia. And then we have a really good pipeline from abroad. Um, we have three national team players from New Zealand, uh, all under the age of 22. And, you know, through my relationships, we've been able to bring those young players in. It, it's been an adjustment. Those are players that come from a reasonably low level playing abroad and come to Denmark and it takes some time to adjust. But you know, for us, it's all about the mix in the locker room, in the club, in the organization, making sure that the young players that we bring in are given the right recipe to be successful and that, you know, the older players respect them. And I think at a lot of European clubs, they talk about developing and selling players and they bring in young players and they don't actually take the steps for those players to be successful. They're not given individual training. They're not given uh, the right environment off the pitch to be successful. They're not, you know, the organizations don't take the time to understand psychologically how an 18 year old kid from Africa is going to adjust to a club in Italy with a different language, culture, et cetera. So I think we, we do a very good job of spending the time and energy to make sure that the players are put in the position to be successful. Of course, not every kid's going to make it, but you know, being a smaller club, we have to do that. We have to put that time and energy in. And I think, you know, we were young in terms of this project. Um, of course, it's also a balance in terms of results versus playing our young players to sell them and move on in the future. But I think we have a pretty good mix. About 50% of our starting lineup in general is under the age of 22. And these are players that are having success and we feel we'll be moving on to bigger clubs probably in the next 12 to 18 months. Football in North America is growing exponentially. How important is it that you can use your contacts to maybe bring some North American talent to the club and, and develop that talent because there's so much untapped potential. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something we've talked about a lot and I've talked on the, in the media in North America quite a bit about it. Obviously COVID's made things difficult with, with, you know, the move, the travel restrictions, you know, we're still interested in bringing young Americans over to Europe. Um, I think some clubs uh, at the top end in Germany have done a really good job at that. You know, it's, 
it's challenging on one hand where major league soccer has done a, a pretty good job of retaining a lot of their good young talent and they're not the kids aren't leaving for free anymore they're spending time playing first team minutes in mls succeeding and then being sold you just saw Brendan Aronson from the Philadelphia Union gets sold to uh, Salzburg for, I think, 6 million euros. So, of course, that's not, we're too small of a club to be in those kind of conversations. So, for us, it's about finding kids that slip through the cracks a little bit in the U.S., whether it's kids that go to college, kids that are coming through big academies that, for whatever reason, it doesn't work out at 18, 19. So, we're still interested in that. But, you know, in the current global scheme, and I'm here sitting in the U.S. where COVID is rampant and travel restrictions are all over the place, it's just a situation where until things settle with COVID, we're going to have to focus on other markets. And that's what we've done. You, you mentioned coronavirus there and, and how that's really changed the, the landscape of football, not only in Europe, but across the world. How has that affected your investment in the club? Has it affected it in any way? Yeah, I mean, it's affected every club in the world, including us. I mean, we're under intense restrictions in terms of who can attend our matches. It's affected our global recruitment strategies as well. Um, you know, the good news I think is we've taken a really smart approach in that we've we've budgeted and we've anticipated a lot of the negative consequences of COVID. I think what I've noticed is a lot of European football clubs, they kind of wrote out the wave, um, the first wave over the summer of the, the difficulty with COVID and the shutdowns. And then I think a lot of clubs and ownership groups thought, okay, cool you know, th this will go back to normal or things will get better or, you know, we'll, we'll certainly by the fall of 2020, we'll have fans in the stadium. Whereas we took a very conservative approach and said, look, like this isn't going anywhere. It's unlikely there's going to be a vaccine anytime soon. So our budgeting for 2020, 2021 included the fact that we didn't think there were going to be any fans in the games. We didn't think we'd probably be able to sell any players. So, you know, financially as a club, we're in a very good place because we anticipated, um, kind of what's happening right now. I think a lot of clubs are freaking out and you'll see in, I think in the beginning of 2021, some clubs realize like, oh, wait a minute. Like we, we, we did not anticipate the lack of revenue coming from no fans and games and depression in the player transfer market. So all that being said, we're in a good place, but that of course, you know, there's a giant hole in our budget and our PL where, you know, revenue should be for things like selling players and having fans at the game. So that's been difficult but I think it's just, it's all about managing expectations. There's no reason to get frustrated about it because that's the world we live in right now. And every global football club is dealing with the same thing. And it's just something that we have to ride out the wave. And hopefully at some point next year, things will start to normalize a bit and we can kind of get back on track. One of the most interesting things about the club is the fact that they've been involved in promotion or relegation in the last five seasons. What, what's your aims long-term to change that yo-yo effect at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that, that I, I think it sounds funny on a piece of paper, but that's completely not sustainable as an organization. I mean, the financial ramifications for going up and going down every season, it just, the organization cannot succeed in the long run under those circumstances. So for us, objective number one is just stabilizing the club. And I think we've done that. We got the club promoted back to the Danish first division. We're a solid mid upper mid table team right now. You know, we can talk about, getting back to the Super League over the next couple of seasons, but it's really about professionalizing the club and stabilizing the club. Before we got here, the club was basically run by, you know, a, a non-professional, non-profit type of organization and board and no offense to them, but they just didn't know how to run a professional football club. And so for us, you know, in the long term, get back to the Super League, uh, you know, monetize and sell some of our players, of course, is the goal. And we feel really good about that. But stabilization was the key because in football, you just, 
you have to, if you're looking long, like right now, we're already talking about the next window and the window after that, and what we're looking like into 2021. If you're constantly being promoted or relegated or wondering if you're going to exist or where the money's going to come from, you can't be thinking long-term and that gets a lot of clubs into a lot of trouble. And in terms of ownership, what are the challenges with ownership that fans aren't aware of? You've explained the challenges of of, of COVID and, and how that's affected the game globally, but in a, for want of a better phrase, a normal situation, what are the challenges that maybe us as fans aren't aware of? I mean, I think on one hand, you know, we're running a small business and everything that goes into a small business is things we deal with on a daily basis, whether that's putting together, dealing with payroll taxes or work permits for foreign players, right? I mean, I think everyone assumes you sign a player from a foreign country and they can come in the next day and play when there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes related to that or licensing requirements from the federations, all that not sexy stuff. I think I think the most difficult thing that fans don't realize is, you know, just general decision-making, I think, you know, fans will come out there and say, well, why didn't you sign this player? Or why'd you let this player go? When there's so many different variables that are in play when making decisions, especially from a financial perspective. And I think a lot of fans just assume that there's unlimited sources of money when it comes to football clubs, whether you have huge, extremely wealthy owners or not, whether you're in the Premier League or in Denmark, fans just assume that the money will always be there. And that's just not the case. I mean, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. No one's just going to unlimited, you know, shovel unlimited amounts of money into a football club. So decisions always have to be made in the best interest of budgets and philosophical objectives from a financial perspective. It's a business. I think a lot of fans look at it that it, you know, don't necessarily agree that it should be a business, but it is at the end of the day. And so I think that's the hardest part is just understanding what decisions are made and why they're made. And I think the best thing ownership groups like ours can do is just be honest and transparent and come out to the fans and sponsors and supporters and say, look, you might not agree with the decision we made, whether it's re-signing a player or, you know, signing a new lease at our stadium, but this is why we made the decision. We think it's in the best interest of our club. I'll give you one really quick example. And it's not something that's fun or sexy, but when we bought this club and we moved into that, we were in the second division, we had a little bit more flexibility over what day and time we could play our home games. The club had always played their home games on Sunday afternoons. And we started to look at the landscape and realize like, we thought if we played the games on Friday nights, we could get better attendance, that it could be kind of a showcase local, exciting game for the fans in the local community. And when we kind of went out there and started talking to people, Everyone universally in the local community said this was a terrible, terrible idea. You guys are crazy. No one's going to come to the games. Like it's too cold. Like it's just stupid, stupid idea. And we were pretty firm in our convictions and said, we, we did the research. We thought this was the right decision. We did it. Intendance increased, I think about 25%. And you can't, now you talk to the people in the local community and they're like, wow, that was like, we love the Friday night games. Like we don't, we can drink to excess and we don't have to worry about going to work the next day. Great decision. That was amazing. So, you know, it, it doesn't of course always work out like that, but that's just one example, small example of something where you make a decision as an ownership group or a management team, you do what you think is right. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But like at the end of the day, the fan isn't necessarily thinking what's in the best interest of monetizing game day revenue, right? He's thinking of like, well, it's always, been, my games are always been on Sunday afternoon. So that's just kind of a, a big picture example of the kind of stuff we go through on a day-to-day basis. And in terms of the club, you've, you've talked about the challenges, you've talked about the aims. For, for listeners to the show, what would you say to them when it comes to Helsinger, how 
how can people listening get involved in the journey of the club? Because I'm interested by your conversation so far, and I can already tell that there will be listeners to the show who will be thinking, how can I find out more about this club? How can I follow their progress? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the best way is just follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I think we've kind of amp- amped up the level of content that we've had this this upcoming season. Unfortunately, our games are not actually available outside of Denmark, um, which is a little bit of a frustrating point for us. We've tried to, to, to the best of our ability, internationalize the club, especially with our connections in the U.S. and abroad in New Zealand. We've tried to to get our games to be more accessible that we haven't got that quite yet. So I think following us on social media is probably the best way to do it and, and keeping you know involved in the club. But like, yeah, I mean, for us, it's a cool, exciting project. It might not be the sexiest thing in the world, but you know, I like to tell people we're, we're dealing with the same decisions and the same things that Arsenal is dealing with on a day-to-day basis with just decisions, you know, from a financial perspective are, you know, magnitudes of zeros less, of course, on our end, but when, whether it's, we identify a player or we're selling a player or we're making decisions related to a promotion or really like those are all this every football club at every size makes those decisions on a daily basis i have to say thank you so much for your insight i wish you and the club all the best and hopefully we can stay in touch and chart your progress over the next few years cool thanks for having me appreciate it so we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open they'll be filled with song they'll be filled with song we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make